Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Ficini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Nikias Duncan is in the building and we're going to talk about a variety of issues because this is a 21 questions podcast. Uh, we did this a couple weeks ago with Danny LaRue and we had a lot of fun. It got a really good uh, sense of feedback from the listeners. So we're going to do it again with another guy that knows the NBA about as well as anyone that I know. He hosts the Dunker Spot with Steve Jones. Uh, he hosts, what is your show with Jasmine called, Nikias? Uh It's called You Late. He hosts You Late. With Jasmine Watkins, he writes at Basketball News. Please, please give a beautiful welcome to Nikias Duncan. Nikias, how you doing, man? I am doing pretty well. It's been a hectic 36 hours or so on the personal side. But other than that, I am good. I'm healthy, loving all the basketball that's going on right now. Feels like I haven't had a real break since the WNBA season ended. Just kind of flowed right into regular season NBA basketball, but it's been a lot of fun. I'm so glad that everything has worked out. Nikias had a bit of a, uh, bit of a fire issue over the early part portion of this week. Everything worked out though. <laughs> everything is good. Uh, that's the most important part here. And we are just going to dive right in to the questions here. Uh, we're going to run through the Miami Heat. We're going to run through the Chicago Bulls, maybe some stuff on the Celtics. We're going to talk uh, a bit about the fouling issue that has uh, been interesting to track throughout the course of the NBA season with the different interpretation of fouling rules. Uh, we have a lot of different stuff here, obviously 21 topics. So let's just dive right in. Nikias, question number one. Do you think the Miami Heat has been the best team in the NBA this season? Because for me... I think they've been the most complete, overall strongest team that I've seen so far this year. Um, I want to say yes, because they have been very good. Like it at bare minimum, like this has been the most fun I've had watching a Heat team in quite some time, just um from a playstyle perspective. I'll probably say no just because I still have some questions about the half court that I don't have with like Golden State, um, for example. But Miami's been really freaking good. Their defense has been absurd. The way they've been able to switch, the way they've been able to play drop now since they have Kyle Lowry at the point of attack as opposed to a Goran Dragic or a Kendrick Nunn. So it's been nice that they can actually mix in more coverages because they want to and not because they're worried their guys at the point of attack are going to get blown by. And that defense has juiced their transition attack, and Kyle Lowry's been a big part of that. Um, being able to push off for makes and after misses, the quick hit aheads, um, finding shooters. He's really empowered a guy like Bam Adebayo in the half court. It's, it's, I, I'm really enjoying this Heat team. I'll just put it that way. 
Yeah, like uh, I'm most blown away, I think, by the integration of Kyle Lowry like into this entire scheme because like Kyle is coming from being look, he's long been one of the most unselfish players and he has long been a player that uh, just makes the right decision at all times. But it was still more of a primary role in Toronto. And he has completely taken a step back and been completely unselfish with how a guy, for instance, like a, uh, you know, Bam Adebayo is taking more touches than he is. And he absolutely is getting more touches than Kyle Lowry is so far. And Jimmy Butler is obviously going to get more touches than Kyle Lowry. But Kyle's just really happy driving their transition attack. He's really happy. Uh just being unselfish and getting guys the ball in the spots they need to get to. He's long been one of the best uh, pass placement guys in the NBA. Like he just puts it mm-hmm. right in the shooting pocket every time. He puts it right into an advantageous spot for a drive every single time. The fit of Kyle Lowry in Miami has just been so incredibly seamless. And that's where I'm uh, most impressed with Miami right now. He's been a godsend again for for all the questions I had about the half court offense last year, and I still have a little bit this year. Like the easiest way to mitigate those concerns is to not play half court basketball, and he's been instrumental in kind of pushing the pace there. And I'm glad you brought up the fact that you know his passing placement and stuff. Like he has really empowered Bam Adebayo in particular. And shout out to Brady Hawk at Five Reason Sports; they do a great job covering the Miami Heat as a whole. Um, one thing that he's pointed out multiple times throughout this year is like Bam will get the ball on the left block. And last year, he if he didn't see an immediate advantage, he'll look for a shooter, flow into a dribble handoff or swing the ball to Jimmy and they get into something else late clock. He'll pitch the ball to Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry just entry, you know, post entry right back to him. Like, no, go ISO, attack. Like, no, you're not getting out of this. Be aggressive. And I think that's going to be so huge for him moving forward because I think aggression is really the only thing that's holding Bam back from being a premier offensive hub among the center position. You mentioned the defense, and we didn't talk enough about the defense, but we have to move on to this second question here. Uh, I am at the point where I definitely trust Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo. I definitely trust Kyle Lowry within this scheme. We 100% trust um, Duncan Robinson just to be a floor spacer, right? <laughs> but do we trust what we've seen from Tyler Hero so far? Because this has been like a two-week star turn. At this point, right? Like, we're at the point (laughs) where, like, what we've seen from Tyler Hero, he's been, like, an incredible 23-point-per-game combo guard who is doing it not only on his own terms, but he's doing it within the flow of the offense, creating plays for others. Uh, Do you buy into the leap we've seen from Tyler Hero in these two weeks? I think his progression is very much real. I do think the game has slowed down for him some. This is already a guy that yep. played with an incredible amount of craft, already has the shooting touch, has even as a rookie made solid reads it's like a secondary ball handler. The issue there was like he didn't have the burst or the handle to you know operate as a primary in the half court, but he's always been able to f- see the floor well. And so now that you have that combined with experience, combined with an actual offseason for him, combined with him being physically stronger, so he's not getting knocked off his spots as much on drives, I think all of his offensive progress is real. Do I think the volume is going to hold up? I don't think so, because I think as Kyle Lowry shoots better, as Duncan Robinson finds his three-point stroke, like outside of the Memphis game, he just has not shot well. Um, but like as those guys get more comfortable, like I don't think Tyler's going to be relied on to be a 20 point per game guy, but I do think he's, he's this good. Like, I don't think anything he's shown from like a process standpoint is fake. Yeah. I, I 
I agree with you. I was a little bit surprised with the amount of hate that he got last year. Like, I know that he had his problems last year, but it felt like a lot of that came from people who were trying to extrapolate what Tyler's life seems like it is off the court, which seems very fun, mm-hmm. into trying to create a narrative that he wasn't necessarily bringing it on the court. And again, like, I don't want to say that Tyler Hero had an incredible sophomore year, but anytime that a guy's 21 years old and averages 15 points, almost four assists and five rebounds and shoots like 44% from the field and 36% from three and 80% from the line, like that, that seems like pretty good development wise for me, right? Like I know he hit a bit of a wall, but it, it just, it feels like he was a victim of the expectation game last year, maybe when combined with his like off court stuff, people were just looking to find a, find a narrative to bring him down. And maybe that motivated him this summer. I don't know, but he, he looks like he's taken the leap that we hoped he would take. Yeah, again, like having an actual offseason helps. Uh, I think it just it just went a little bit too far. Like I, I hear the notion about like bubble hero because he had that 37 point game against Boston or whatever. And, you know, second year proves that bubble hero was a fluke. And it's just like outside of the 37 point game against Boston during that playoff run, like he shot worse from three during that postseason run than he did during the regular season. So it wasn't even like he got this massive bump. Yeah. And then you look at last year, he dealt with injuries. The Heat dealt with injuries. And COVID, he was a point guard, and they had to come off the bench. Then he was starting or operating the secondary role with all of this roster flux around him. So, like, the fact that he was able to put up the numbers he did with decent efficiency, it's honestly impressive. So now that you have more of a – again, like, he has an actual offseason. You have more talent around him. The second units with him and Kyle Lowry have just been blitzing teams so far. Yep. It all, it, he's in a role that makes sense for him. And so, like, even now, as he's looking better as, like, a secondary guy and he's averaging over 20 points per game, I do think some of the on-ball reps that he was force-fed in the beginning of last season, you know, he starts the gauntlet last year against Drew Holiday and Lonzo Ball when he was in New Orleans. Like, he had himself an opening stretch of the season that was not fun for him. But I think that experience helped him. And now he's even more comfortable in that he's actually slotted into the role that fits him. Let's go to number three. The Chicago Bulls are the team I've probably enjoyed watching more than any team other than the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference so far this year. Do you believe in the Bulls yet? And how much do we think that Pat Williams injury is going to hinder them? Um, Honestly, I'm getting there. Uh, I had concerns about their defense heading into the year. Um, I didn't really trust Vucevic as like a play at the level of the screen type guy that he would need Mm -hmm. to be to kind of compensate for the rest of his roster. And I didn't trust DeMar DeRozan on the back line. Patrick Williams basically replacing Thaddeus Young as like that back line rover was something that I had an eye on. Now Pat Williams is out. But the defense has been much better than expected. The offense, though it's been good, is kind of lagging behind. That is just not what I expected to see from this Bulls team. Like, everyone is competing. Lonzo has been incredible. Alex Caruso has been incredible at the point of attack. It's They're piecing it together. And like even some of the pieces that they're fitting in off the bench, like Derrick Jones Jr. comes out, I've as someone that's watched him closely in Miami, if he can't do anything else, he can fly around defensively. Yep. Uh, Javante Green has been, he's just been the energizer bunny on both ends of the floor, really, but particularly defensively. They are plugging these gaps with this aggressive scheme. Um, I just want to see what this looks like. I mean, they're in the midst of a tough schedule right now, a tough stretch in their schedule. So I want to see what the rest of it looks like. 
because they're going to be facing some good offenses, but they're making believers out of me right now. Yeah, for them to have beaten Utah and then to come back and then also beat Boston by 14 in like a 19 point comeback uh, last night. And we'll, we'll talk about that other team there in a minute. But it, it was an incredibly impressive little two game stretch. And on top of that, I mean, they had that one point loss to the Knicks that really kicked off this difficult part of their schedule. Look, I was higher on this Knicks team or this Bulls team. I'm sorry, coming into the year, I actually just kind of really believed in them in terms of them being able to fit together offensively in a really coherent way. I had the same defensive concerns as you, but I had hopes that Lonzo and Alex Caruso could really kind of stem the tide and that Zach Levine coming back from USA basketball and in a free agency year would really kind of, uh, play as hard as he could defensively for a number of reasons. But man, like I, I'm, I'm just really impressed with Chicago. I think that they're legit. Like, I think this is probably look, I, I don't know if they're a tops, if they're a top four team. I don't know if they're a top three team in the East. Like I still believe in Miami more. I still believe in Milwaukee more. Uh, I still believe in Brooklyn more certainly, but like they're right in the mix, given the uncertainty of what Philadelphia is going to look like in two months if a Ben Simmons deal happens. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that they're just kind of right in the mix for that number four seed, and I would bet that this is a playoff team, not a play-in team at this point. Yeah, they they had that upside. Like heading into the year, I did a um, I did a big season preview for BasketballNews.com. Um, went through each division, so I had like a high range and a low range for Chicago. Like I ended up kind of. Um, ending on them being a play-in team. But, like, I feel like the offense is going to be good. And, like, the fact that they're a good offense despite Nikola Vucevic just not being able to hit anything for the first yep. week and a half of the season, I think that bodes incredibly well for them. I've just – the defense just really impressed me. Like, they are creating turnovers at a rate that I didn't know was possible, <laughs> to be frank with you. So I wonder what it's going to look like if that ties down. I would, I would imagine there's going to be at least some regression there moving forward. But – just this general commitment and the way that they're flying around and rotating. I'm really impressed. Okay. Let's go to number four, which is also a Chicago Bulls question. And this, this is like a Homer game theory podcast question, right? Uh, I am an enormous DeMar DeRozan fan. I, I say that with no, uh, I, I want people to know where this question comes from here, but is DeMar DeRozan closer to being a hall of famer than what we think? So, here, here's my case. By the end of the year, DeMar DeRozan will probably be right around like 55th all time in scoring. At the end of next year, assuming he averages just 20 points a night, which would be a come down from what his current level is, uh, over 80 games, he'll be right around 43rd all time in points. All of the top 48 scorers in NBA history are in the Hall of Fame. DeMar DeRozan has made multiple all NBA teams. He's really well respected by NBA players like other players I'm just like saying like are we are we looking at a Hall of Fame career that we aren't recognizing in the moment or is the fact that we aren't recognizing it in the moment a statement that maybe he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer <laughs> Uh, like if I just zoom out and think like, is DeMar DeRozan a Hall of Fame level player? Like my answer would probably be no because I yeah. just have a a strict line on that. But if you look at some of the names that are actually in the basketball hall of fame and you look at what DeMar DeRozan is averaging for his career 
You just mentioned how many career points he has and probably will have, barring something catastrophic. Um, he does have the two All-NBA teams. He's a four-time All-Star. Might be five if he keeps this up throughout the year. Um, either the fans or the coaches will vote him in at this yeah. rate. So that gives him five. Like, he certainly has a Hall of Fame case. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he eventually got in. It, it's not that far off, and... It's just like kind of crazy to me, given he came up in this era of like analytics and like, look, I use analytics as much as everyone does. I use numbers as much as everyone does, but it always felt like people who utilize numbers fought to like push against his game without recognizing like it was in the infancy of the use of analytics without recognizing how valuable his shot creation was. And that ended up pushing him down these like, you know, yearly player lists. Like there were multiple times where I remember headlines. DeMar DeRozan is not a top 40 player in the NBA per this number or per like this voting thing like that. That just ended up being crazy. And I I am very blown away by the way that DeMar DeRozan has immediately fit in to the Chicago Bulls team. He averaged, uh, or he had 37 in that comeback win against Boston last night. He had 32 in the game against Utah. Uh, his mid-range game has worked absolutely perfectly within this scheme. He's attacking the basket just as much as we've seen. He's taking more threes than we saw him take in San Antonio and hitting them at 41% on a very, very small sample size thus far. Man, this guy looks like an all-star right now, and I wonder if we are uh, we're not appreciating it enough in the time that it's happening. I guess. I feel like there are. We don't have to hang on this too long. I just feel like there are two different conversations that happen with Demar Derozan. It's like the shot creation is important, and I think that should be valued. And I think as analytics have risen, um, not that it's the right application, but so many people at least branded as analytics equals threes. And yep. that's a whole other podcast that we can get into about how that <laughs> he doesn't begin to describe what analytics actually are. But like, I do think he was a bit unfairly penalized because of that. Like, as you mentioned, the shot creation is very important and he is very good at operating in the mid post. The playmaking has gotten better. And then there's also the regular season versus playoff burden in which he has had some very notable flame outs throughout his career. So I, I wonder like how that's going to be balanced when he actually retires. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's go to number five here. The Chicago Bulls played the Boston Celtics last night. Uh, Boston might just be a mess. <laughs> uh, well, anytime I've watched Boston, they look like a total disaster in defense, uh, especially in transition. And then offensively, like it doesn't look like this team enjoys playing with one another. Uh, where, where are you on Boston right now? <laughs> I was full disclosure, like I had MA Udoka as my coach of the year pick because I thought Boston was firmly going to be a playoff team this year. So I'm coming in like I was high on Boston coming in, assuming health. And they have just not looked like a cohesive basketball team. Like Jason Tatum hasn't gotten his legs under him. Jalen Brown has been pretty hit or miss. And even MA Udoka has <laughs> made note of that in a presser. Like I, I don't know which Jalen Brown I'm going to get or how what kind of energy he's going to bring, which is not something that you want to hear from your new head coach about one of your star players less than two weeks into a season. (laughs) Not necessarily ideal. And I'll make this comparison. This may be the only time I compare the Celtics to the Kings at any point throughout the season. But but watching them on defense 
and this is something that Steve and I talked about on the Dogger Spot last year. Soft switching irks my nerves. Yeah. And this Boston team, if you look in a player's direction, they are ready to dunk under a screen and switch something. And like, God bless Al Horford, who has, has he been their second best player this year? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Like, no question. So, and well, it's either says, it's it's probably third, but like he's been their most important of the like role guys consistently. Right. So like even if he the fact that he's even in that discussion says more about at least one of if not both of the stars than it does about Horford. But particularly defensively, that man is trying his best, and like this <laughs> just <laughs> he just should not be tasked with what he's being tasked with, and he's. Yeah, I think last time I checked, like he was leading the league in blocks, which that that's not going to stand. But yeah, the the defense doesn't seem to play with any real purpose. The offense, with all the talk MA had before the year about ball movement and how they wanted to pressure the rim a little bit more, and they wanted to get the stars easier looks, and they wanted the stars to create looks for others. It's been a lot of iso ball still. Like nothing's really yep. changed. So I am concerned right now. Yeah, I'm concerned. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, Then you had Marcus Smart come out last night and say that, like, basically Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum need to pass a little bit more. Uh, They need to look to pass more or they don't want to pass in those late game situations. I think that those quotes got like got like 10% taken out of context. Like, it was clear that Marcus Smart was like trying to make a point, it felt like. But Mm. I think that they were a bit more they were framed a bit more aggressively than what maybe Marcus Smart mentioned and, and like wanted it to feel. Uh, but yeah, it feels like they just have a lot of problems right now in Boston. Like just, just a lot of problems at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go to question number six. So what do you think of the foul calls that have happened so far league wide and the different interpretation of fouling on shooting fouls particularly are you a fan of essentially fewer fouls are being called on these shots do you think that there's room for improvement in terms of the way that the game is being called are you a bigger fan of this style of game than last year's style of game just what are your thoughts on officiating thus far this season um as someone that loves defense i am glad that things have gotten a little bit tighter on that front or I guess I should say a little bit looser on that front. Uh, I'm glad there's a little bit more physicality, particularly on the perimeter. Um, I'm, I do like that they've kind of gotten out some of the, I don't want to say cheap, but I'm struggling to think of a better word. So I guess the cheap stuff where you yeah. fake a guy, do you lot, you jump three feet sideways to get into his line of sight and draw the fight. Like, I don't want to see that stuff. With that being said, yes, there's absolutely room for improvement. You can eliminate some of the, you know, the arm hooking and stuff like that without deciding not to call fouls in the paint period. Like yeah. there has to be a better balance with that. Like Trey Young honestly has a point in which some guys are like the smaller guards in particular, but guys are getting hammered in the paint and the wrestlers yeah. like nah play ball. Like there has to be a better balance there. Like get rid of the stuff that clearly aren't basketball moves. Also get rid of the Euro foul. I think we're it's time out for that. Oh but- yes. That is actually my number one concern right now. Like there are I think that uh Bob Vulgaris tweeted a stat that something like 8% of transition opportunities are being stopped by Euro fouls right now. And that just needs to end. Like, it's just so consistent. It's literally stopping the game, making the game longer and making it less exciting. Like for the love of God, please competition committee, whatever you are called, please get rid of the Euro foul. 
Yeah, we got we got to curve that one at least. But yeah, like a little bit be- better balance with paint play, and then I'm all good. Like I, I like it overall, but that's the obvious area for improvement for me. Okay, and then number seven. Speaking of the fouling issue, do we buy this narrative that some players have been affected by the new interpretation of the rules? Like, do we think James Harden is struggling with this new interpretation or do we think he's just like, frankly, working his way back into game shape right now? I, th- I think it's just him working into game shape. Uh, yeah. I, I don't really buy into that. I think a lot of people want to run with that because that's the easier thing to do. And that gets you the retweets on NBA Twitter, which fair. But honestly, like, that's that's a small percentage of it. Like James Harden is too good. He's too smart more than anything for that to be the issue. Why he's just suddenly not an all star anymore or something ridiculous. Like he's going to be fine. Yeah, the, the bigger problem for me with James Harden is that he can't separate from anyone right now because he looks heavy out there. Like, James Harden's always been a thick guy, but, like, he looks a little bit thicker than what is normal. And I'm sure that by, like, January, he's going to be in more uh more normal condition for where he is and is going to look like a star again. Like, James Harden right now is averaging... 19 points, 8 rebounds, 8 assists per game. He's still been effective because of what you said, Nikaias. He's so smart and intelligent and just knows how to, like, draw defenders toward him. But, like, the game, the guy can't elevate at all. He can't separate right now. And that's gonna, that's just going to change, I think, by the time January rolls around, right? Yeah, like, it's going to be fine. Like, we're going to have this three-week stretch in, like, January or something where he's averaging, like, 28, 9, and 12. And we're going to have MVP articles being written about him. And we're going to just forget about this entire opening stretch. It's all going to look ridiculous. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla Minus One recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan. And you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon Prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. 
you're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account, nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord, and it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, we're back here. Let's go to question number eight. This is just a simple one. Who's your favorite league pass team so far, Nikias? Favorite league pass team for me right now. If I'm excluding Miami, it's probably Cleveland, funny enough. Ooh, love that choice. Cle- I, I am. I don't want to spoil it because we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but I am enjoying a lot of their players right now. In a way we'll, that we'll, we'll just not- we'll, we'll move that question up and talk about it here in a minute, but continue on some of the other guys that you really like so far. Oh, like quick shout out to Laurie Markkinen, who I, I panned the trade as soon as it happened. Like, why would you give up Larry Nance Jr. and get Laurie Markkinen back? Why would you add another big to this rotation? Why would you try to play Laurie Markkinen at the three on purpose? And it has worked to this point of the season. We'll see if that works long term, but like he is spacing the floor like just from where he's standing. Like he's moving well off the ball. He's shooting the ball. He's really competing on defense. Like we've seen a lot of big, big pick and rolls involving him that have generated some fruitful stuff. Like he is in this wonky role on this wonky team and he's making it work. So that's probably the biggest one. Um, Colin Sexton seems a little bit more comfortable playing off the ball, which is fun. Yep. Uh, Darius Garland, when he's been out there, has been good. So I, I've, I've enjoyed watching Cleveland so far. Yeah. I think that with Lowry, what, the deal is, is just having someone who can make shots has opened up so much for their offense. Uh, this is a team that like really just genuinely did not have like a wing shooter last year. And Lowry is not a wing shooter. He's a big shooter, but even just playing him in lineups has created space for those guards, uh, in a way that they just like, frankly, did not have last year. Like nobody guards Isaac Coro outside of 20 feet. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was about to say, that's the big one. It surprised me when they announced that they were going to start him over Isaac Okoro. I was like, huh, like I get why, but that's an interesting shift, especially with Isaac actually looking pretty good towards the second half of the season. But to your point, like the spacing has just been huge for them. Just even when they're running a pick and roll and they'll have Laurie in the corner and have him lift to the wing, like whoever's tagging the roll man has to keep an eye on Laurie Markman. And that's not something you say about even Chetty Osmond, who really got those shots up last year, or especially Isaac Okoro, who, as you mentioned, teams just do not guard him. Just that subtle shift has made the half-court offense flow a lot smoother. And then let's go to the big reason why I think Cleveland has been incredible incredible to watch so far this year. I mean, you don't really watch college basketball, and you don't do any sort of like draft work, but you've now seen this rookie class for a couple of weeks, and... How pumped are you about what you've seen from Evan Mobley? I mean, he's literally just like completely transformed Cleveland's defense, I think. 
if, oh, he's so fun. He is. He brings me so much joy when I watch. Outside so good. of him setting, outside of him setting screens, that's the one thing where I'm just like, brother, please hold your contact. What's <laughs> what's happening right now? He, I said it on. Uh, we did a rookie episode of the Dunker Spot last week, and I said like, everybody's one of the worst screeners in the NBA right now. And then I immediately praised him for like five minutes after that. He's so much fun outside of the screen. The defense, as you mentioned, like he can move on the perimeter. He looks like he's been in the league for like eight years playing drop coverage. And that's just not a thing you should say about rookie bigs. He looks incredibly comfortable in drop. You can play him higher. You can switch him. He's just good. He's so good at basketball. Well, like the crazy thing for me is like the help defense instincts already. Like he, Think about like how often guys like Darius Garland and Colin Sexton get beaten off the dribble at the point of attack because they do like it's fine. You know, they're young guards. They're small. Uh, bigger guys can take advantage of them. And he's just always there. Like he's always there to cover up their tracks. It's an enormous, enormous credit to him that like I don't quite think he's like all defense level yet. But if someone wants to make that case, I'll at least listen. Like, I'll at least hear it out that, like, he could be yeah. on that team right now. And, like, even if you disagree with that, which I don't. Like, I do think he has a fringe case right now. Like, he wouldn't make – you know, can I take the opportunity to say, can we please get an all-defensive third team? There's no reason we shouldn't have a third team. I mean, there is a reason, but that's another podcast. Uh, yeah, I love he it. Let's do had, it. He, he definitely has a fringe case right now. And, like, even if you disagree with that, the fact that that's a plausible conversation starter for a rookie big man should let you know how good this man is. I can't remember the last rookie who has been this impactful defensively. Like, we can talk about Davion Mitchell, and I really like Davion Mitchell's point of attack defense, but, like, Davion Mitchell is doing, like, one aspect of defense at a truly difference-making level, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's a good help defender who's always in position, but he's just small, right? Like, it's right. harder for him to make an impact. Evan Mobley is succeeding at literally every aspect of NBA team defense right now, and I am I am completely blown away. Uh, he would be my rookie of the year, like, un, unquestionably right now. Like, I, all due respect to Scotty Barnes, all due respect to Franz Wagner, Josh Giddy, you know, all of these other rookies who have performed really well. Like, I, Evan Mobley has been so good so far. He has been so good. Like, I, pro- I probably have Barnes as like 1A and Mobley 1B just because of the offensive responsibility. But like, yeah. that's I, I'm not pushing back hard on Evan Mobley for a rookie year. He's been that good. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to question number 10. The Atlanta Hawks are taking more mid-range jumpers than any other team in the NBA this season and fewer above the break threes than any other team uh, outside of Chicago and Phoenix. When you're a team that has Trey Young, who takes a ton of pull up above the break threes, Kevin Herter, Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, uh, this seems like a stylistic concern right now. How worried are we about the Nate McMillan era in its first full season offensively in Atlanta? I also throw in John Collins as an above the break, like pick and pop big. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't want to go there, but watching some of their offensive film from this year, there's so much going wrong structurally for me. Yeah. And I preface this with like, I'm not like an NBA coach, so I could very well just be wrong. But from what I've seen, like the spacing has seemed off for them. 
some of the minor details of some of the half court sets they run have been off. And it's just getting them late into the clock. And then there's also, like, at some points it feels like they're not spacing correctly. And then at other points it feels like they're just playing, like, a playoff two minutes left in the game type game plan for 48 minutes. And, like, that's not a brand of basketball you win with during the regular season with this personnel. Like, there were so many DeAndre Hunter post-ups against Seth Curry in the Philly game in which they got blown out in. And I'm just like, I get it. But also, there are better players on the floor. You can get guys moving a little bit like let's stress the defense some let's not run double drag with the sole purpose of swinging the ball around and getting DeAndre Hunter posted up you can get that late in the clock don't start with that that's just it's just weird I, I'm yeah the, the the choices like you said it's it's I don't even know that it's like spacing I think it's like the structural choices being made, like what what they try to do, how they try to attack. Like it almost feels like they're using the early portion of the regular season more experimentally this year, whereas they might not like I, I worry that they might not be good enough to do that. Like they're a good team that is definitely at the very least a play in team. In terms of talent, they should just be like a full stop playoff team. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they're good enough to be able to like say for the first, you know, 20 games of the season, Hey, we're going to experiment here. We're going to get DeAndre Hunter involved, like in post ups. We're going to, um, you know, try and run some like weird pick and pops with Danilo Gallinari or something like that. Like as opposed to like using him in the mid post, like he, is successful at right like it feels like they're doing a lot more different stuff in order to maybe expand the like tool bag later in the season but i don't know that they're good enough to do that um honestly if you frame it that way that they're using the early portion of the season as like an experimental grounds like i probably feel better about atlanta because right now i'm just flat out concerned about what i've seen particularly yeah. on the offensive end so if you're making if the case being made is that they're just experimenting right now, then honestly I'm fine because I do think they're good enough to do so. Um, I do believe in their depth. I believe in their top end talent. Like in the midst of this mess, like Trey, as he's adjusting to the foul things, like he's still been pretty good. Yeah, John Collins may be having the best season of his career right now on both ends of the floor. So like yeah. there are still good things happening in Atlanta. And so if this is just experiment experimental stuff and they can say okay we can just go double drag heavy offense whenever we want to like I at least understand that bit the flip side of that is we also have years and years and years of Nate McMillan running NBA offense so like it's kind of hard to give him the benefit of the doubt on that yeah that's where I'm like I don't know, I guess, is the thing. Like, I don't know if they're experimenting. Like, it seems like that might be the case. But like you said, like, we've seen Nate McMillan for 10 years as a coach in the NBA. And this doesn't look all that different from Nate McMillan's 10 years as a coach. So, like, I don't know. It seems seems strange to me. Uh, I hope that Atlanta goes back to running very fun offense sooner rather than later because Trey Young uh, is incredibly fun. And he's still incredibly fun, but there's probably space for him to be even more fun than what he's been thus far. Uh, let's go to number 11 here. Up until last night against Toronto, the the Knicks have been running just some sweet, beautiful half-court offense. They were literally first in the NBA in points per possession out of the half-court per synergy at 1.033 points per half-court possession. Do we trust that that is actually going to hold over the course of the full season? 
Uh, no, I don't think the Knicks are going to have the best half-court offense in the NBA. However, I will say that it is refreshing that Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett aren't operating in phone booths like they were last year. Yep. Adding NBA players that can shoot the basketball and can do so off of movement or can do so off the dribble means that there are more dribble drive opportunities. That means there are multiple options within your half-court offense. And things can just kind of flow from one option to the next. Like, that's how it's supposed to work. That's why you add Kimball Walker, even at the stage. This is why you add Evan Fournier. You can keep the chain moving. You can use Julius Randle as the tip of the spear, or you can end possessions with him if you need to. And you have other competent offensive players. So I have enjoyed watching the Knicks in the half court this year. Yeah, the only the only way, the only thing I will say is I don't think they're going to have the number one half court offense in the league, if only because right now they're shooting 41% from three. Like, no team is going to shoot 41% from three over the course of the entire season. Having said that, I think structurally their offense makes a lot more sense. Like, hmm. they are taking over 43s per game. They are at, they're in the top 10 in the league in terms of three point attempts. They are getting to the foul line a ton because even though this, you know, the way that the game is being officiated has changed, that doesn't stop Julius Randle from getting to the foul line because he's so yeah. strong and physical. Like the fouls the NBA is taking out of the league, the, those do not affect Julius Randle in any way. Like that's, that's just not going to happen. So I like the way that Julius Randle is playing. I really like the way RJ Barrett is playing. He looks a lot more comfortable. He looks tough. He looks physical in the same way that he always has, but seems to have a bit more poise and hesitation off the bounce that is uh, causing more issues for opposing teams. And like you said, the spacing has really, really helped all of those guys play. Uh, again, I, I will also note too, like Mitchell Robinson, I think has been really good on both ends for the Knicks so far. So uh, a really good team. I think that they are Somewhere in that like four to seven, four to eight range in the East. The East mm -hmm. is deeper this year, uh, but I feel good about where the Knicks are. And I think that they have very clearly consolidated the progress that they made last season. Yeah, they've done a very good job. And I know this was mostly an offensive focus question. If I could just give a quick shout out to RJ Barrett's defense, that man's been getting after it this year. Yep. If we're talking about fringe, all, all defensive cases, like I think he has one right now. What he's done as a wing defender. Yeah, uh, hot take. These rookies that get a ton of shit placed on them in terms of role early on in their careers, uh, they probably won't have the best numbers. They probably will be inefficient. If I remember correctly, RJ Barrett like didn't even make the all rookie team as like the number three overall pick. Now you look at him like, look, he's not quite an all star level wing, but if he became that by the time he's 24 i don't think anyone would be surprised given that he's still 21 uh you got to give these guys that have a crazy high level role uh early on in their careers a lot of time before they can really figure things out in my opinion um number 13 draymond green has looked phenomenal to start the year. He's looked absolutely incredible, in my opinion. Um, he is back to being the Draymond Green of old. He's flying around defensively. And look, like the Warriors have been like one of my favorite teams to watch so far in the NBA. So I will end up watching a lot of the Warriors. But I think that right now he might be my defensive player of the year pick uh, league-wide. 
And on top of that, he's averaging 10 points, 9 rebounds, 7 assists. He's shooting 59% from the field. I guess that my question is, there was a lot of consternation about Clay Thompson not making the NBA 75 team. Look, like, I wouldn't have had a problem if Clay would have made that team. But to Mm -hmm. me, like, Draymond Green is the much more important cog for this Warriors group and has been throughout the course of their incredible run. I'm I, I kind of think Draymond Green should be on the NBA 75 team is where I'm with this. He literally has changed the way the NBA has defended over the course of an entire decade and mm-hmm. has been a critical cog as either the second or third best player on three NBA championship teams. Uh, where, where's the love for Draymond Green to potentially make like an all you know, NBA 75 team. Cause to me, like he's just had a much more impressive career than Clay Thompson. And that's all due respect to Clay Thompson, who I think is fucking incredible. Like, I think that's fair. Like yeah, Draymond has been, I don't want to throw like generational gets thrown around a lot, but he has been a generational defender with the way that he's kind of shifted the NBA wholesale, like him being able to operate at the five had everyone looking for the next Draymond green and quickly finding out there's only one Draymond Green. Like, there's only one dude that has that kind of size, that kind of strength, and also has, like, the processing to go along with it. Like, you're just not going to find that brand of defender. And that's before getting into how that processing um, transfers on the offensive end. Like, that aids him in the playmaking. The most important – well, I won't say most important. Uh, what's really impressed me the most with Draymond, because I knew the defense coming in. Like, I'm glad that he's gotten a little bit more aggressive offensively. Um, yep. Maybe not so far as the three-point shooting because he he's barely taking them at this point, but he's kind of turbocharging his way into these floaters, into these, these shots at the rim. He's shooting, I think, 59% from two this year, which is yep. a career high for him. And that's all that was really missing. Like, yeah, it would be great if he goes back to the 15-16 year where he's actually shooting well from three on decent volume. But, like, I don't know – that's still a point of contention for Steve Kerr in particular, or if Draymond's lost confidence in the jump or what, at any rate, you just wanted him to be effective. I mean, you just wanted him to be aggressive and I'm glad he's doing that in addition to the other stuff. Yeah, no, I, I am, uh, I, I am a long time Mark for Draymond green and I, I, I would like to see him get his flowers. And I think that uh, the level he's been at this year has been absolutely incredible. And, the antithesis of that level has unfortunately been the Portland Trailblazers. Now, I preface this question by saying I've, I know that they've won three games like in blowout fashion. I've watched the Blazers four times this year and I happen to have caught all of their losses. <laughs> so please <laughs> like just, just know that that's where I'm coming from with this question. Like that's been my sample so far this year. Uh, what do we think is going on with the Blazers? Like their defense has been statistically okay. But it feels like that's noisy based off of like shot making Uh, like teams get whatever shot they want against this Blazers team. Uh, Do we think that they can actually turn this around or do we think this is kind of the end of this core's run? I just don't love Damon CJ at the point of attack for any defense. I don't love one of those guys, much less them as a duo. And I think that's just where a lot of it starts. You're able to. 
even if they're able to stay connected over a screen, like their teammates are kind of anticipating them getting beat and they're cheating over a half step or rotating a little bit early in anticipation of them being beat. So even when they aren't, they're still kind of giving up an opening for these corner threes or these above the break threes. So like it's possible that that kind of like shooting luck in particular, like carries over. We've seen it happen before, but structurally, like I don't know how this gets better. Well, I don't see how it gets much better. Um, I appreciate them experimenting. Like the Cody Zeller signing in particular allows them to play a little bit higher or play a little bit more aggressively in pick and roll. Like I think having that as a counter, having a guy like Larry Nance Jr. who can fly around, like that helps. But I don't know if it I don't I just don't know how much it shifts things for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, like it feels like this was a team in need of like big change this summer and look like you're not going to find someone who's a bigger fan of Larry Nance than I am. Uh, I am just an enormous fan of the way that he moves the ball uh, of the way that he defends. He flies around and help. He's really, really good on the ball on like four different positions, right? Like I think that Larry Nance is a winning player and I generally understood why you go after him, but I think this team needed more structural, bigger changes than that. And then on top of it, like, again, I like Norman Powell, I think Norman Powell's much better suited defensively at the two than he is at the three. Mm-hmm. So you're playing small across the back line. You have Larry Nance coming off the bench playing 17 minutes a night. I, I just, I don't, I don't know where the defense comes from on this group. Cause like the other part of this too is like, yeah, Robert Covington is a very good back line help defender. Robert Covington can also get taken advantage of on the ball like if you switch a guard mm-hmm. onto him like he gets hit so i i just don't know structurally where the defense comes from with this roster um in terms of like on ball defensive ability uh on a position by position basis i'm not that was actually gonna be one of my quick follows like how have you felt about robert covington defensively this year yeah n- not great <laughs> uh not great I- i've you know, the last couple of years, like I used to be a big fan of Robert Covington. Uh, but then like a couple of those playoff runs really kind of opened my eyes in terms of how defenses can actually attack him on defense because he is so upright. Like his legs are so long, his arms are so long that I feel like guards who can really bend and explode, like they can get by him. And because mm-hmm. his limbs are so long, like whenever he has to change direction really quickly off the ball, I feel like or on the ball, I'm sorry. He doesn't really do that as well as what you would anticipate from like an all defense team guy. So mm-hmm. I, I just worry that they have too many players on this roster that can get switched onto the ball. Like they, they can play this drop coverage scheme as much as they want, but at the end of the day, you're still going to get guys switched onto poor matchups and they have too many guys. They make it too easy for other teams to switch, to switch their best players onto advantageous matchups, like a bigger guy against CJ or Dame or a smaller guard, uh, you know, being able to drive on Robert Covington. I, I feel like there's just, it, it's too easy. They make it too easy on opposing teams. Mm-hmm. It just puts them in these shootouts that they constantly have to win, and Dame hasn't shot the ball well to start the year. So yeah, and that'll change. Like it's whatever. Like Dame will be great again. It's just I don't know. I, I think that I think this has run its course a little bit. Uh, is where I'm at in, in Portland. 
And that doesn't mean trade Dame. Like, I'm not saying trade Dame, but I think they need to make a bigger move, like maybe moving CJ, who I think has been great to start the year. Or maybe it's moving Nurkic, who's a free agent at the end of the year. I, I don't know what you do, but you need to make a big move, I think. This isn't like a small fix situation. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Okay, let's take another quick commercial break, and then we're going to buzz through these last seven questions. Okay, we are back. Let's get through here to number 15. The Pacers finally got their second win last night, and Karis LeVert helped them look a lot better, a lot more competent structurally on offense. He had a really great game in terms of uh, pick-and-roll synergy with Demonis Sabonis. But, like... They feel like another team that is primed for a shakeup. Just they have a new coach in Rick Carlisle who wants to run a different scheme than what they have run previously. It feels like they should be primed for a pre-deadline shakeup. Like, what? Where are you at on the Pacers at this point? I think it's about that time. Like, what made them a fun like potential Ben Simmons suitors because they had like six guys who are just good that you kind of cobble together, but. I think particularly in the front line, like something has to give. And like if the early returns on DeMontis Sabonis, and I don't know how long it's going to hurt, but like if the early returns are that he can actually hold his own in like a hard hedging scheme and not look out of place like he did last year. Like if that's the thing, like at a certain point, then make him your five trade miles Turner. Yeah. Like, like if that's, if that's what you're going to commit to do that, because they still haven't, they've had like marginal success with those two on the floor together. And like that's cool, but if you want to move up at all, like you need to just be you need to have successful lineups, not marginally successful ones. And like if that's the thing that's holding you back, then make the move. Here's what I worry about with that though. I wonder if look, I don't think they've missed the window on trading Miles Turner. Like some team will happily take Miles Turner. Like don't get that twisted. But I wonder if they missed the window in terms of getting the most value for him because like Boston just signed Robert Williams to a large extension and has Al Horford, who's played really well this year, right? Uh, Cleveland, look, I think he'd be an incredible fit with Evan Mobley. Like that would be the building of like a top five defense year after year, but they just signed Jared Allen to a big deal. Like, are they going to be in the market for a center? Um, like maybe Milwaukee could see him as like the long term, you know, replacement for Brooke Lopez, but Brooke Lopez has multiple years left on his deal. Uh, maybe Detroit, but like, are you going to trade him in division? I'm a little bit skeptical. Maybe it's Golden State. Like maybe that's their, maybe that's Golden State's move, right? Uh, you, you go out and you get Miles Turner to anchor the defense, uh, with Draymond Green and then his floor spacing, uh, helps them play well. Like, honestly, like that, that might be my favorite potential option, like doing something like Moses Moody, uh, plus something else for miles Turner at this point. Cause I, I, if golden state did that, they'd probably be my like title pick, to be honest. I think they're pretty close to that level already. Um, so may, maybe that is the move, but I, I wonder if the market's a little bit lessened right now than what it would have been in the past for miles Turner. Um, I think that's, that's a sound point, honestly. Uh, even Rashawn Holmes just got the new deal in Sacramento, which I don't understand how he didn't get more than what he did, but. Yeah, I agree. Good, good on Sacramento for that, I suppose. Um, I guess between Golden State and Charlotte, 
just because they have yeah. a lot of perimeter guys that they can cobble together, they they definitely need a center. Like this is, I, I've seen enough Mason Plumley. Um, took took eight games, but I'm with you. Yeah, that's <laughs> like I, I've seen the like Mason can be a 22 minute guy off the bench. Like he can't be the starter on a playoff team. Yeah. That's just not that's not his ministry right now. But yeah, like I should and I also want to clarify, like me saying, hey, split up the front court does not mean that those guys are not individually good. Like. The oh, Miles they're both Simone great. They're all-star cap. Yeah, like I love Miles Turner. It's just there's just a little bit more synergy that needs to be made with that roster, and like that seems like the obvious point to make that adjustment. Yeah, I agree. And Malcolm Brogdon, they can't move him because they signed him to that extension, so he can't be right. traded for six months. Um, I, I guess Karis LeVert could be an option, but Karis LeVert and Sabonis like just had a really great game last night, and I want to continue to explore how that looks you definitely don't move Chris Duarte who's young and you have for a lot of cheap years um I I think that it's just that Miles Turner is the man like the odd man out more than anything right like uh you're probably building around Sabonis long term maybe it is Sabonis like I can't imagine them moving Sabonis personally but like one of those two seems like the odd man out to me and it just feels like Turner is the one and I like I think Miles Turner is probably one of the ten best defenders in the NBA. Uh, he has a case to be one of the five best defenders in the NBA, in my opinion. It's mm-hmm. not a statement on him; it's just a statement on where this organization is going. And I feel like they just need they need to do something a little bit differently. They do, and I would just say before we move off of Indy, getting TJ Warren back at some point would help. And I just have no like, is he? What's going on with TJ Warren? Yeah, I have no idea. You know, it seems like there's a foot issue there with TJ Warren, and I don't know. And by the way, that was a tremendous transition, Nikias, because our our next question is about another player with a foot injury. Uh, How worried are you about the entirety of the Zion Williamson situation? Because I, I am extremely worried at the moment. Yes. That's that's pretty much the best way I can phrase. Yes, I I just don't like the vibes coming out of New Orleans. Period. Like, there's been so much weirdness surrounding Zion, his people, New Orleans, the relationship they have with current and former players. It's just all very weird. And even the roster itself, it's it's something I wrote about in my division preview on them. Like, they have a lot of players I like. It's just how do you find fit the lineups to make things make sense? Like. Can you feed everyone there? Like it's just there's just so much going on, and with Zion being removed right now, a lot of guys like Nikhil Alexander Walker in particular, like he's just over his head in terms of role right now. Yep, and that's just kind of making things worse. And now like Brandon Ingram's also been in and out a lot. It's New Orleans is it's I really hate it for him. I hate it for the fans there. There's just so much to worry about right now. Yeah, like I do too. Like there are so many guys on that team that individually I really like. Like I thought Jonas Valanciunas was a top six center in the NBA last year. I have no idea why they went out and traded for him. Like I just have no idea why you go out and you move two first round picks for him or essentially like the value of two first round picks given the value they gave up in the 2021 NBA draft and then the additional future pick they gave up. Uh mm-hmm. I had Herb Jones as a first round pick last year. I had Trey Murphy as like a top 15 guy on my board last year. Um, I really like Kyra Lewis is like an interesting project guard who's 20 years old and is still figuring things out. Uh, like I, I, 
have long been kind of in on Brandon Ingram, you know, being just as valuable, if not more valuable than um, a lot of younger players like his last year on his rookie scale deal. I think I had him sixth in the NBA in prospect rankings. I love all the individual pieces on this team. I don't think they've built a roster that makes any semblance of sense whatsoever. <laughs> right. And that's with- like, that's before we get to the Zion issue, right? Mm-hmm. And all of this kind of culminates into the rumblings of Zion, not being happy to, being happy there or being, you know, questioning things long term. It's, you know, it's not enough to bring in talented players. If you're a GM, you have to bring in talented players that fit together. And yeah. like, you know, I all to talk about the player empowerment era and stuff, and we don't have to get into that. One thing I will say, like players are a lot more are a lot smarter about this stuff. Like they understand the importance of like lineup cohesion and stuff. It's not just I want my shots, I want my money, and that's it. Like they understand this stuff. They see what's being put together. Yeah, yeah, and like in the case of Zion too. I mean, I look like the guy looks heavy right now. Like let, let's just say that, right? Like I don't know what he weighs right now. I think the Bleacher Report had a report that. New Orleans was concerned he was over 300 pounds or something like that. Like he was out on the court for that Knicks game and people mm-hmm. like had cameras on him. He he looked heavy, let's say. And look, he's yeah. wearing a sweatshirt, but even just his movement, like his like he they had him doing like defensive slide drills and he looked heavy at this point. Mm. Um I, I'm you know, I would like to like put some onus on Zion too to like, you know, get let's let's get like into pristine game shape here at some point. Um, but they just said like it's going to be two or three weeks until he's practicing, and yeah. that feels very concerning to me. Um, it, to me, like it's on both parties here. It's on New Orleans for not making a roster that like makes him want to maybe get back on the court because this roster is a mess. And it's on Zion. Like he needs to get into like the physical condition that he has to get into while also like being willing to like the fact that he thought he was going to play in the first game. And now we're eight games into the season. They're seven games into the season. And he's still two to three weeks away from practicing. There's just a very clear inherent disconnect between the star and the team. And that is a real worry to me. That's a very real worry to me. Like you said, like I feel bad for Pelicans fans because it feels like they have been like treated unfairly in this because they have this star here and there's just absolutely no transparency from the organization regarding what his status is going forward. Like, how do you get excited about the team if you don't know if your blue chipper is playing and if he isn't, why he isn't? Like, heading into media day and be like, oh, yeah, by the way, Zion had foot surgery. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> how is this a thing we're just now finding out? So it, it's it's a mess. It's a mess right now. Okay. Let's go to number 17. If you were ranking players on the Lakers in terms of importance, how high would Austin Reeves rank? Uh, and I asked this question basically just to bring up the idea of how worried are you about the Lakers depth and like the way that those depth veterans have played outside of Carmelo Anthony? Because I think that I would have Austin Reeves fifth on this roster in terms of importance right now. 
Uh, I think I had them sixth, which the fact that we're in lockstep here is it is a little bit concerning. Uh, quick shout out to Carmelo Anthony, who has been lighting things up at home at least. He's been lighting it up this season. Yeah, so probably him. But but yeah, like I am worried about the wing depth in particular. As impressive as as I've been with Austin Reeves on the defensive end, like he does still have inherent limitations there. And they're kind of banking on Kent Bazemore to kind of play above his head. Avery Bradley, when he gets wing assignments, he's mostly a point of attack guy. But they're counting on him to play above his head. When Trevor Ariza comes back, like, I thought he was pretty good defensively in Miami. Like, they actually trusted him with some point guard assignments um, last year. But, like, they're trusting him to defend at a high level off of this injury hiatus and also shoot well, which that's been a pretty inconsistent thing throughout his career. So, yeah, like, Reeves is right there. After like the big three and stuff, so I, I wish they had another wing. I really do wish they had another wing. They traded a lot of wing talent to get Russell Westbrook in the building, and like I get why they made that bet, but you're also starting to feel it. No, you, <laughs> it's even simpler than that. Like, forget trading the wing talent. You want to make the Russell Westbrook deal? Okay, fine, right? Like, go make the Russell Westbrook deal. Why in the fuck did you not resign Alex Caruso? Like. <laughs> What are you doing, Los Angeles? You had a guy who signed with Chicago for $9 million a year, who's a borderline all-defense guy on a roster that desperately needs defense and desperately needs guys who are happy to be just the unselfish role player. And you let that guy walk over $9 million? You re-signed Taylor Horton Tucker instead of Alex Caruso when you're trying to win a title right now? And, like, no disrespect to Taylor Horton Tucker. Like, he might end up being really good. But there's no way that Taylor Horton Tucker is helping you win a title this year more than Alex Caruso is. I, I, I just don't un- and look like they signed similar deals. That's why I bring up Taylor Horton Tucker, uh, you know, opposed to Alex Caruso and, and make mm-hmm. the Lakers pick. They didn't really have to pick. They could have signed them both. Uh, yeah. But if, if you're picking one because of luxury tax issues, I don't understand uh, outside of like clutch machinations uh, why you pick Taylor Horton Tucker over Alex Caruso. I do not get it. Yeah, like I, I'm right there with you. I also don't get it. Like the fact that they're that they had to bring in Avery Bradley for some patchwork at the point of attack even further <laughs> proves the point. Like, hey, you probably should have just pay- wrote the check for Alex Caruso. Like, you're the Lakers. Like, you don't have to worry about luxury tax. Like, you have plenty of money coming in the barrel. Like, the, just just retain your young talent that you find. Yeah. I- I'm glad you brought up Trevor Ariza. Look, he had surgery on his right ankle and is going to miss, like, the first, what, eight weeks of the season, something like that. Uh, look, I have some concerns about what he'll come back, you know, when – what he looks like when he'll come back a ankle Mm. injuries tend to have adverse effects on shooting B ankle injuries really might hinder his lateral agility, especially as he works his way back into the rotation. Uh, I think that it was a great signing. I think it was exactly what they needed to do. I I just worry about what he looks like. And that creates some, uh, some possible concerns for me uh, if I'm a Lakers fan and if I'm uh, uh, if I'm running the Lakers roster at this point, like Rob Blinka. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a very fair, balanced way to put it. Some, yeah. Just some concerns. Okay. Uh, the Utah Jazz are averaging the second fewest passes per possession in the NBA right now. Two years ago, they were in the top third of the league in passes per possession. 
despite very little personnel change overall uh, on this team, like they've added Mike Conley over the last few years, but Mike Conley is an unselfish player, right? Like it's not, it's not like he's going to hinder the ball movement. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think this style of play is sustainable? Do you think that it's more sustainable for them as they try to move toward playoff success? Um, Honestly, like I, I've been thinking about it. Like I'm just kind of on the fence about it right now. Like I don't know how that. Uh, I hope I don't disappoint anyone with that answer. But like it's interesting. Like they have passed the ball a lot less this year, but they're also still generating a very, very, very high quality of shots. Yep. So it's not like that has materially changed who they are offensively. And I guess that's kind of the point. Like if you can cut out some of the fat, I guess if you want to phrase it that way and still generate like 80% of your offense at the rim or from three and you lead the NBA in like corn, like the percentage of shots coming from corner threes by a wide margin without passing as much is like, okay, why not? So I guess, I don't know. I guess my one worry there is that what we saw in the playoffs last year was Donovan Mitchell getting doubled a lot. And so I do worry about like, what that's going to look like in the postseason if they do just try to force the ball out of his hands again and that they have to kind of rev up the passing. But I, I don't know. Like, I'm still I'm still in data collection mode on that right now. Yeah, I think I am too. Uh, I think part of the reason, look, Bob Volgaris, uh, who has just been such a tremendous addition, again, uh, go follow Harala Bob. I'm so excited that he's back. He kind of noted this on Twitter that, Every pass has on average a 3% chance of getting, of turning the ball over, essentially. And therefore, if you make five passes in a possession, you're already above the league average in terms of turnover rate, right? The Utah Jazz are still like 22nd in the NBA in turnover rate, despite the fact that they've run this style of scheme over the first six games, which is interesting to me. In, in a number of ways. Like I, I was surprised that they've been turning the ball over as much as they have. Like Donovan Mitchell's averaging four turnovers per game. Rudy Gobert is still turning it over a little bit more than you'd like to see given his overall role. Mm-hmm. I, I'm definitely still in data collection mode. Like you are on this. I think that it probably could help them in the playoffs and they're so good. They're such a well-oiled machine at this point. Like I'm firmly on team. Like the Utah jazz are probably going to have the best record in the NBA this year. I just find any sort of difference in what they're doing. Interesting. And the lack of passing, if you've watched them this year has been startling. Like it's, it's a very clear difference in terms of the way that they're playing as opposed to the early Quinn Snyder years when they move the ball an awful lot. Do you think before we move, like, do you think the passive being de-emphasized is because they've embraced not just three-point shooting, but pull up three-point shooting in a way that they just haven't before? Yes, I think that's probably true. I think that it it's in part that I think that there's probably an analytics factor because that organization is really smart and forward thinking. And then on top of it, I think that they just have more guys who can generate pull up threes than what they've had. Like they get Jordan Clarkson, you know, a year or two and a half years ago or whatever. Um, they're really empowering him to shoot threes. Like he's take, he's making 24% of them and that will <laughs> revert at some point. Like he's a better shooter than that. Donovan Mitchell, I think will make more than 31% of his threes. Uh, that, that's like the craziest thing to me also. Like 
they are five and one right now, and they're shooting thirty two percent from three with one of the best shooting rosters in the NBA. Like they're only going to get better from this point. Yeah, their their scheme is so structurally sound in some ways that they're shooting thirty two percent from three in a small sample size, and they're still top five in offense. Right, like. The Utah Jazz are just a buzzsaw on offense and on defense, frankly, uh, in the regular season. I am assuming that the lack of passing has to do with A, them being more analytically inclined, and then B, also them trying to uh, ready their self-creative players for what the playoffs will look like. And that's at least interesting to me on a number of that, that's a very different way of playing than what we've seen in the past from them. Yeah, we talked a little bit earlier about the Hawks maybe being in experimental mode. Like, the Utah Jazz absolutely have the credence to do that during the regular season. Oh, totally. Like, 100%. Let's go to number 19. The Wizards are winning with depth. Kyle Kuzma's been good. KCP has been good. Spencer Dinwiddie and Montrezl Harrell have certainly given them more offensive firepower. Are we at the point where we just buy the Wizards as a playoff team now? They are sitting at 5-2. and two. And they've certainly been the second best team in the division behind Miami Heat so far. I just need to see more. And this is as and I mean that in the literal sense, like I've only caught a few Wizards games so far this year. Like I'm trying to spread the wealth during the regular season and then hone in a little bit later. Like Washington is a team that I have not seen a lot of. So I just need to see more. Um, when I have watched them, like I've appreciated their activity defensively, having better personnel on the wings in particular has helped that. But like, yeah. They're flying around. Like, I'm watching the Hawks game. Like, they're trapping Trey Young on basically every pick and roll, and they're rotating behind it. Like, the effort is there. They're able to push and transition, and they have a lot of offensive firepower. So, if the defense is there, then they certainly have the upside to be just a flat out playoff team. I, I just need to, I need to see a larger sample, and I just, just need to see more of them generally before I have a firmer take on them right now. Yeah. I think I just need to see more in terms of, where everything settles for them. Uh, Bradley Beal has not really made shots yet, which is kind of scary for the rest of the league that this offense has been top 10 in the league and Bradley Beal has not really made shots yet. Uh, also, Spencer Dinwiddie has been just like fine. He's been pretty good, like in terms of distribution uh, and running the show. He's actually been really good in that regard, but like, it feels like there's even more latitude in the games I've watched when they played some good teams for him to be able to like just shot make in a real way. Mm. Um, the thing I will say is something that you said. They're much better defensively and particularly, I think they're just fucking harder to play against. Like Aaron Holiday will dog you up and down the court at the point of attack. Uh, KCP is a really, really tough physical defender. Kyle Kuzma has been good defensively this year. Daniel Gafford gives them an athletic presence in the front court that they didn't have uh, for a ton of minutes last year. Uh, you know, he's still only playing 17 minutes a game because Montrose Harrell's been so good and they've been splitting the center position between those two. Like, I just think that they are harder for teams to play against in a real tangible way. And that's a credit to what they've done and a credit to how Frankly, Wes Unsell Jr. wants to build a roster because Wes Unsell Jr. has long been the defensive coordinator of the Denver Nuggets. And mm -hmm. I would imagine that it was a goal of his to make them much more difficult to play against structurally this year. 
he certainly imparted that. Like, he definitely deserves credit there. It's incredible. Like, if you actually have wing defenders, you can do a little bit more on defense. It's not a thing that the Wizards could say last year. So, kudos to them for adding that talent. I wonder what deal brought that talent in. Um, again, I just I just need to see more from Washington before I put my believer hat on. Well, uh, as we're recording, we mentioned earlier that we would love the NBA's competition committee to discuss the Eurofoul phenomenon. Uh, Sham Sharania sources, the NBA competition committee today discussed the uptick in transition take fouls this season and encouraged the league office to develop a rule change that would eliminate incentive to utilize the tactic in the future. Huh. I absolutely love that. There we go. What a good on the league. Well, we we've forced change, Nikias. We haven't even published this yet, and we've forced change throughout the league. They heard us talking. Uh, all of us are bugged somewhere, and uh, you know the, the NBA league office has bugged us. Okay, number twenty, small sample size theater. Which top ten defense do we buy the most to hold their short season sample over the course of the long term? Minnesota, Chicago, or Dallas? My answer is Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Why? It, I like Minnesota just because of their general activity level. Like, I'm glad that they finally have Cat player higher in pick and roll. I was so tired of watching him in drop coverage and looking like <laughs> a fish out of water doing it. I could not stand it. I'm glad they're playing him closer to the level of the screen now. Josh Okoji, when they've had him in the lineup, he has been he's literally been in guys' jerseys. Like, I am still laughing at what he did to Jalen Green in the opener. Like, it's just, it was just rude what he did to him and KPJ. But um, between Okoji, you have Jaden Matt Daniels, you have Jared Vanderbilt still. Patrick Beverly is doing Patrick Beverly things, but he's also still been pretty darn good at the point of attack. I've had more issues with him off the ball than on the ball, oddly enough. But I like their personnel. Like, uh, among those three teams, at least, like, I think they have the most equity to pull it off. Yeah, and I think that they have also made the most like tangible schematic change, like with the way that they're guarding ball screens is drastically different since Chris Finch took over than like what Chicago is doing with their new personnel and what Dallas is doing, right? Like Dallas still has to play, um, Kristaps Porzingis, like, they can't really play him all that high, all that often. He's just not athletic enough to do that. Um, I will say, like, Anthony Edwards, like, talked a lot about defense coming into the year. He's still, like, losing guys. Uh, there was that game against Orlando last night. Like, he had the Franz Wagner assignment a decent amount and just mm-hmm. played way off of him in team defense and played off of him when he was, like, as an off-ball defender. He kind of would dig into ball handlers, you know, driving on the same side too often. And, you know, the magic hit a couple of just easy same side kickouts to Wagner for open threes. And it was, you know, Anthony Edwards uh, that was kind of to blame on those. Mm-hmm. So I, I would like to see him continue to get just a little bit better in terms of his awareness defensively. Uh, but they're just very, they're a lot more athletic, I think on the ball this year. Edwards is an athletic defender on the ball. Jane McDaniels is a tough defender. You mentioned Koji, like he's just a monster. I think Jared Vanderbilt's actually been really good defensively too. Like he gives them mm-hmm. rebounding, he gives them toughness, he gives them athleticism and switchability. Like 
I think Minnesota is the pick here. I think you're absolutely right to choose them. I think that this team makes at least the play-in tournament. I, I think that that would be my... Uh, I, I think that, uh, again, Bob Vulgaris, I think, said that they're going to be a top-six team in the West. I wouldn't go that far, but I do think Minnesota makes the play-in tournament based off of what yeah, I've seen. Yeah, they're playing for me. Like They've been able to... Not just straight like They've been a successful team this, so far this season in... Oddly, have not figured out the offense at all, which I expect that to course correct throughout the year. Like, Cat's too good. Anthony Edwards is good. Yep. D'Angelo Russell's good offense. Like, they have the personnel to be a good offense. So, like, I think that's going to course correct. And even if the defense regresses some, that they have a play in formula. Yeah. Okay. The last question is the question we ask everyone. It's the all important number one question that we ask on this podcast. Have you accepted Alexei Pokashevsky as your basketball lord and savior? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, what, what a king. We, we saw the full Poku last night. He was incredible in the first half. Uh, and then just like completely and totally unplayable in the second half. <laughs> uh, like it was amazing. I watched the game this morning and I was like, Oh yeah, this is exactly what I want from Poku. Like I, I want him to play great for a half and go like four or four from the field, make some interesting passing plays, like, you know, be a seven foot ball handler and then come in in the second half and the intensity ramps up and, uh, just gets totally lost defensively and like they have to pull him <laughs> very quickly. Like, just for entertainment purposes, like, every team needs a Poku. We need a Poku, we need a Bowl Bowl on every team, where it's just a, a very tall, lanky guy that has ball skills that are uncommon for his size, and you just don't know how applicable it is to NBA basketball yet. But, like, those guys should just be penciled in for, like, eight minutes a game. I just I just need to see it. I, I love him. Like, I, I can't get enough of watching Alexei Pokashevsky every time he takes the court. Uh it's it's honestly one of my favorite things in the NBA. Like it's just such a weird mix of skills that I I can't get enough of watching him. It's just it's the absolute best, and he's been better this year. Like last year was, uh, it, it was messy. This year, uh, he's at least like a non disaster at uh, all times on the court. And by the way. People make jokes about second play, second year players saying, oh, yeah, he's still 19. Like, don't worry about it when in reality they're 21 years old most of the time. Like Jason Tatum was 19 for many years on basketball <laughs> yes. Twitter. Uh, Alexei Pokashevsky is legitimately still 19 years old, still trying to figure out how to play in the NBA. And it is the best. And I am somewhere between uh, 0% sure and 100% sure that Alexei Pokashevsky is a good basketball player. And honestly, that's the only way to evaluate him. Like that's that's just how that has to go. Yeah. Uh Nikias, tell the people uh where they can find you, tell the people where they can find your work, tell the people what's going on, whatever you want to talk about. This is your window, this is your floor. All right. Well, find me on Twitter at Nikias NBA. You can find my basketball takes with Steve Jones Jr. on the Dunker Spot. If you want more casual listenership, me and my good pal Jasmine L. Watkins host a podcast called You Late. We kind of recap the night in sports on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So lots of jokes and banter there if you want a looser feel. Um, other than that, I'm just watching a bunch of basketball. So let's have fun this year. That is absolutely fantastic. I love it so much. Go follow all of Nikias' podcasting work. Go follow his written work. He just wrote about OG Ananobi today, if I remember correctly, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, my P is in play. Oh, yeah, it is. I absolutely think that. Uh, 
This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do anything you can to support the show. We will be back later this week. We're going to talk with Matt Penny about sophomores in the NBA. Maybe some stuff on third-year players, but probably going to focus more on the sophomore class. Until next time, though, we will talk soon. Bye. Thank you.